This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. It takes away the magic of learning. If you're sat in front of a piece of paper from the age of five, shading in bubbles so that you can practice shading in bubbles for when you come across your first... uh, And we've seen that, by the way. That's Andy Hargreaves reflecting on the problems with standardised testing and student engagement. It's a problem that just doesn't seem to go away. Andy is my guest today on Central Station. Hello, I'm Colin Klupik. Andy Hargreaves is an international writer, researcher and advisor on teaching, leadership and educational change. He's also the founder and director of a Canadian educational centre called Shanine, which is an acronym that stands for Change, Engagement and Innovation in Education. Andy will be presenting a keynote at the 2021 Sydney Morning Herald School Summit with an address titled, Engagement is the New Frontier of Achievement. He's devoted most of his life to improving education and challenges us again with the notion that engagement is critical to student learning and that we have an over-obsession with performance. To find out how these two fit together and what that means, we cover a broad range of topics with some great practical advice. I was lucky enough to speak with Andy a few days before the summit. Andy, you've founded what's called a Canadian Collaboratory, it's described as, and the name is Shanine, which is a a rather nice-sounding acronym, if I can say it that way, and it uh, stands for Change, Engagement and Innovation in Education. It sounds like a very large thing, uh, but you are the founder and director. I'd like to know, what was your motivation to create yet another centre for this kind of innovation? Uh, well, we're not we're not yet a large thing. We're still a small thing, but uh, we hope to become a large thing over oh, okay. over time. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but, you know, it's like Hamilton's "The Room Where It Happened," which is uh, everything begins in a small room before it moves into a big room and out into into the world. Uh, we're not tiny. We do have projects. We have a lot of presence and impact in uh, public media, social media, uh, in Canada and outside Canada. Uh, I've, all, I've for a long time been uh, very interested in the field of educational change. Some people would say I helped to create the field of educational change. I created a, many years ago in Toronto a centre, um, a, 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 a journal, uh, a network, a discussion group. I now work with and advise governments on change. And while some people are interested in change in terms of helping people to manage change. Uh, I'm also interested, I've always been interested in uh, what changes there are, uh, why these changes occur, are they good or bad changes, and how should we respond to them? So along comes the pandemic, which is about as big a change as you can possibly imagine, Mm. 1.6 billion children out of school across the world for the first time in at least 100 years. And uh, so I certainly personally at first try to bring my own expertise in and think, what do I know about change? How can this uh, help people? And very early on, I wrote a piece in uh, the Washington Post uh, called, uh, with the odd title, which was 19 ways uh, to uh, help uh, teachers and schools deal with changes in front of them because it was COVID-19. So they thought 19 was a cute number uh, in the paper. And um, and after reading this, uh, lots of organizations came to me personally. Uh, and uh, I suddenly found myself on um, 
a lot of international discussions with the ministers, uh, former ministers, uh, including your former minister, Kevin Rudd, mm-hmm. um, uh, with the, the OECD, with the technology companies, technology networks, and so on. And uh, everybody was interested in the question, what happens after all this? What are we learning from this? What happens after it? And uh, people were very excited about technology, incredibly excited about technology and began to talk about schools without walls. Why did we need physical buildings anymore? Learning could take place anytime, anywhere. We could have hybrids, blends. It could be ubiquitous and so on. And um, this was all happening at a time when so many kids were learning at home um, uh, with remote learning. I'm finding it enormously difficult, and so were the teachers. Yeah. Technology was actually turning out to be one of the most difficult parts of the pandemic, yeah. and everybody thought it was the huge solution. So uh, I've not been long at the University of Ottawa since I came back to Canada, but but got to know a few uh, excellent colleagues there, and uh, really began to chat to them about uh, some of them research in technology, but we're very yin-yang about the technology, which we think everybody should be, which is look at the opportunities, see what it can uniquely do, what is its unique value proposition that cannot be achieved in any other way. Um, try and advocate for access that is public, free, and universal as a human right uh, for all children, as it is in places like Estonia, for example. Uh, but but also be serious about uh, be serious about the risks about uh, ab- about the drawbacks things like uh, excess uh, screen time uh, digital addiction a girl's anxiety on Instagram and yeah. so on and so we we felt we want there was a need for a place uh, there was not negative about technology but 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 was. Um, was not driven by the tech companies, was not driven by the economic organizations, was not driven by governments, but was there to help educators have a a kind of thoughtful, balanced view that in the end, the way they would use technology would be what was most helpful for the kids, not driven by some ideology or set of uh, special interests. I have a uh, a friend and former colleague who uh, spent quite a long time at a school that uh, was... It considered itself to be a very innovative place, and uh, innovation has certainly been uh, in the education discussion now for quite a few years. And uh, some of the experiences that I've I've come across, including this one of my uh, former colleagues, there is that there's so much talk about innovation and change, and sometimes places uh, work so hard at implementing it that there's this sense of innovation exhaustion. Yeah, do we face that risk? Well, you know, I've been, uh, until a couple of years ago, was advisor to the Premier of Ontario, and we had a meeting with, we had six advisors, and um, in one of the meetings, people came to us and said, you know, we're hearing a lot of complaints, there's too many initiatives, Mm. and um, uh, so I wrote a little brief for the next meeting, and I said, here's a few reasons why there's too many initiatives. Uh, Number one is there's too many initiatives. (laughs) So, so yes, there so are too take many. It, take it, take it seriously when you hear it. Uh, there are some others, which is uh, sometimes because the government's not joined up. The initiatives are coming from different departments about different things. So a new problem comes up, you think you need uh, a, an initiative for it. Sometimes there's no narrative connecting 
the initiatives and the innovations. They all seem disconnected. They're not part of a story of, of how we're trying to improve our school or make things better for the, the kids. And this supplies innovations, a kind of initiative, which is introducing, literally means introducing something new. The fashionable term in business, any technology, has been disruptive uh, yeah. innovation. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, invented by a man called um, uh, Christian Christensen yeah. um, and a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. And it makes a lot of sense in business. Uh, Christensen's argument in business was that uh, people, uh, IBM, for example, would invent uh, desktop computers, uh, highly innovative. Then they got very attached to it. And then somebody within IBM would say, well, hey, what about laptops? Or they'd say, you know, what about iPads? And IPM would test it on the customers and say, well, you know, customers are not really sure they want this. They think it's cute, but they don't want to lose memory. So the innovators go away. Uh, they, they do a startup somewhere else. Uh, and eventually the, innovator, the innovators eat their parents mm. uh, is, is what they do. And then they try to apply that to education. Um, particularly to digital education, to at-home learning and so on. But exactly the same. Schools were once innovative 100 years ago. Now they're old, tired. Uh, they they need a new model. The new model is like a technology, innovation, schools without walls and so on. And uh, again, there are some positive possibilities with technology. But we've seen in our work, uh, uh, particularly in Ontario, in some districts, uh, introducing laptops for uh, um iPads for everybody uh, in one year, in one year. And even the directors of the districts say this was absolute chaos. Mm. Uh, basically, the kids lost a year Yeah. Uh, be, because people threw the laptops in without figuring out where it works, where it doesn't work. Uh, I prefer disciplined innovation. So when the Dyson was invented... Uh, to replace the vacuum cleaner, um, it it required over a thousand prototypes before it went to market. So you don't just invent a Dyson, think this is cool, say let's throw it on the market, see what happens if the dust blows up in people's face and blinds them. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> but actually, you you test it very carefully yeah. to see if it works. So yeah. so that's what we should do with innovation, which is we should introduce it to a few people, inquire, look at it, see how it goes, mm. uh, read read the research. If it works, scale it up, use it use it with a with a few more. So there is a role for innovation. Innovation is important. But we've been handling it in totally the wrong way, I think. I guess it's very easy to create something that looks very innovative by quickly buying a whole bunch of devices and throwing them into a classroom. And then you could take a snapshot of that a moment in time and say, wow, look at all this incredible technology in the hands of people. It must be doing something good. And I guess mm -hmm. if, if that's happening all the time in an, in an approach which is undisciplined, as per your comment, then mm -hmm. I guess people might just think, oh, here we go again, and then the innovation starts to creep in. Your 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 work is is based in Canada. How do you how do you cross the boundaries though? Because it, it states that it's uh, it has a global reach. How do you how do you do that? Uh, well, in a in a personal sense, I've uh, your guess from my accent. I'm not Canadian. I come from the north of England <laughs> yes. originally. Uh, I'm a citizen of two countries and have been a resident of uh, three. So, so some of it is almost inscribed in, I guess, my personal 
uh, life history. We, we have people in the center who are uh, English Canadian, French Canadian. We have um, uh, we uh, we have one of our faculty is um, is Algeri is Algerian French Canadian. Oh wow! So she speaks so she speaks Arabic, uh, French, and uh, and uh, and English all all uh, very well, and brings all those interests and concerns into the center. We have uh, we have an American in our center, Joel Westheimer. The uh, writes brilliantly on education and democracy and his uh, his mother is the famous sex therapist dr ruth westheimer in the united uh, states who's okay. in her 90s and they did a broadway musical on her <laughs> um so uh, we have people who were uh, you know trained south of the border in uh, technology so so people come people come from uh, deliberately in the center from many different cultures many different identities uh, many different perspectives we we don't want to have kind of one story, one narrative, one mm. set of people, one one identity. So we reach out to those uh, kinds of communities. We do it in terms of uh, in terms of uh, where we write, uh, the kinds of projects that, that we're beginning to establish, and uh, and so on. So uh, when when uh, you learn from diversity, but you have to be deliberate about it, not just for the politics of representation, but but because of what you can actually learn oh. from people who are different from you rather than ones who were the same. Well, let's talk about the global reach that you're going to have in Sydney next week when you present at the Sydney Morning Herald School, yeah. School Summit. I think it's fair to say that the broad term of your presentation is on the subject of engagement. And engagement is something that is just the ever-present problem in the classroom. You'll always hear about it. I know in initial teacher education, we're talking about it all the time. You then say that, it's the, that uh, engagement is... A significant part of achievement and I think most people would probably believe that and I think most people would mm. probably have thought that for a while but you're suggesting that it's the new frontier of engagement why is it the new frontier mm. now well when you say engagement is the path to achievement it is in one way blindingly obvious and I've, I've spent my life uh, researching studying writing about and advocating for the blindly obvious against uh, systems that that are um, uh, that, that that can't see what is that, that that they are blinded by what is blindingly obvious. Yeah. Um, I think in Australia and in many, um, not all, but many English-speaking countries since the 1990s, uh, reform and change has been driven has been driven by achievement, not just by achievement, but by performance, by measured achievement. And so your national goals in Australia, and um, particularly your national test, NAPLAN, uh, and your end of school examinations uh, are all ways of saying, actually, the thing that matters most is performance. Uh, NAPLAN is about you know, literacy, literacy, numeracy, literacy, and uh, maths. It's about my school, about measuring who's ahead, who's behind, how do you intervene? Uh, we've done in, we have research from Ontario, which has a, a test very similar to NAPLAN uh, called the EQAL. It, it's not what the Americans called high stakes. So usually on the basis of the results, you don't fire the principal or you don't close <laughs> down the school. Um, but, but it, but it, 
but it does guide intervention and it, it does inform the parents and parents go here rather than there and uh, principals are afraid of the results so they start prepping the kids for the for mm. the tests and this distracts from the rest of the curriculum so suddenly everybody finds themselves they're, they're very engaged with performance but they're very disengaged from learning uh, because they're so driven to get the performance results up and it it's what my colleague will be at the conference uh, Pazi Salberg has called the global education reform movement or germ it's a kind of germ that's gone yep. around the world in, infecting our school systems making them disengaging and about 10 years ago perhaps a little less another movement began began to grow in a small way i'd like to think uh, I, I was part of this and it, it was really about uh, two things i think one was we became uh, uh, very aware globally, economically, we needed other kinds of skills as well as literacy, uh, numeracy. People call them 21st century skills, global yeah. competencies are a lot of them. <laughs> they involve um, creativity, working with digital uh, collaboration, etc. And somehow this performance drive wasn't getting us there. And, and that needed innovation and it needed engagement in order to connect kids with those skills. Uh, the other one was well-being, that, that we were becoming aware, uh, particularly the last five to seven years, because of uh, lots of things, the uh, spread of the iPhone to adolescents, the distraction of them, uh, the movement of refugees, uh, post-traumatic stress, yeah. uh, increased awareness of the challenges of our indigenous uh, First Nations uh, populations that um, that actually this drive for performance was damaging uh, young people's uh, well-being. So we needed to think not so much about achievement, but about learning, how to get learning. And one of the ways, uh, it's not a guarantee, but 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 one of the best and clearest ways of doing that is, is through increased student engagement. So we needed to think harder, better, and together about about how to increase student engagement for all students. I'd like to talk to you a little in a moment about what that actually looks like, but something else that's been suggested, and I believe you'll be addressing this in the summit, is that about a quarter to a half of kids at school are bored, that that might be a given, and I don't think many people would have trouble believing that, but that a similar proportion also feels like life has no purpose. Now, that's, yeah. a, that's a lot, lot worse, if I can put it that way, than being yeah. bored. Um, yeah. you, you'd almost say that if you're that bored that you feel that you have no purpose, then, we're, then we've got a really serious problem. Uh, that sounds like a really bold claim. How are the students actually expressing that? How does that come out? So, uh, first of all, these aren't from the same samples of students. So, y you can have a sense of purpose and be bored because you have a sense of purpose, but your school's not meeting it. And um, and and you can have no sense of purpose, but be entertained uh, <laughs> and, and distracted, right? So, it, it's possible. So, these are not the same groups of people, but I agree with you that, that an even more serious problem than being bored a lot is feeling that life has no meaning or has no purpose and the surveys we pick up from are uh, uh, two bits of data from the UK and the US with with young people that is uh, you know teenagers adolescents uh, uh, people right through to their early 20s and uh, what, what what the Stanford work says is is not only do people say through these surveys that they feel life life has no purpose, but they couldn't even articulate what having a purpose would look like. So it, it's as if in this very um, uh, 
performance-driven, economically competitive, individualistic world. Uh, and, and when I say competitive, I mean harder and harder to get into a university. And then because everybody's going to university, harder and harder to get into a top university. Yeah. That's why that's why people are committing suicide in Korea, because they can't get into one of the three, what they call the sky universities, which are the only ones that people feel they they value. So it's all about performance getting on. Social mobility is harder. Um, than it was in my generation. I had enough struggles as a working class child. It's harder now. You've you've got to take on debt. Um, the the privileged kids have more of a leg up. They get internships in private uh, organisations. There's fewer jobs in public sector, which which are easier to be mobile in compared to private sector, hmm. where you often need ne- networks or a lot. So it's harder for everybody to move up. It is more competitive, more ruthless. Everybody's kind of in this game, and and people have lost sense of what it's for. That, that once you've got achievement, once you've moved on, what, what does it mean when you're in the world? Uh, meanwhile, other kinds of things have been coming along that I think are going to change this, including the pandemic. And that is really what do we mean to each other? What what do we mean in relationship to the world, to the land? Things that First Nations people have, have uh, worried about for a millennia, actually. And now we are just starting to worry about in a in a serious way. So I think this will change in part because of what's what's been happening in our world. But I think we need to address that quite deliberately in schools and connect what we're learning in school more to people's lives and, and more to what's going on in the world around them. Sounds to me like you're suggesting uh, an existential view here, which is quite large. When, I've, when I hear what you're saying, I, I wonder... We've got students in, let's pick Australia or let's pick New South Wales, the state of Australia, and say, okay, we've got lots of schools all trying to achieve, as we've been talking uh, talking about, and they're all competing against one another to get into competing universities. Something Something I thought of as you were talking was, well, if we're talking about students and learning, which children and learning, really, aren't we all on the same side? (laughs) <laughs> and so, the, the, you know, we're, we're competing as if we're all sort of trying to climb to the top of the same mountain. And then we all get there and wonder, yeah. why did we come here? Is that, is that the kind of thing that we're suggesting? You know, there's two purposes of education, at least. Uh, one is an individual purpose uh, for the child and their family. How, how, how do they advance? How do they succeed? How do they progress? How do they have... How do they have an opportunity in a in a broader, bolder sense? We'd we'd say that means more than exam results and and the right kind of job. We'd say, you know, how 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 do they flourish? How do they become fulfilled in life? And and then there's also public uh, good about uh, education. This is why public education is so important. Not every child is uh, is involved in uh, public education, but but what is your contribution to the people around you, to your uh, community, to your uh, to your society, to people who may not have what what you have, and. Um, over the last 40 years, we've got too invested in the first half of that question and, and too disinvested in the, in the second half of that question. And as people will tell you, Australia actually has one of the most unequal uh, school systems mm. uh, in, in the world for historic, for historic reasons. Um, 
and I am totally supportive. Uh, so probably some of your listeners will switch off now. I'm totally, support- <laughs> I'm totally supportive of private schools, of independent schools. I believe they have a right to exist. So I, I, I've, I've worked with all the sectors in Australia, I still do now, uh, because I believe all children deserve good teachers and, and, and good leaders. And it's important, it's essential to teach social justice to the privileged, even more than it is to teach, <laughs> to teach it to those who, who aren't privileged. Um, but I don't believe uh, that um, uh, private schools should receive uh, tax breaks, and I don't believe they should receive public subsidy. Um, that, that, so they have a right to exist in, in, in their own way for people who wish to choose them for their own reasons, might be faith, might be, might be philosophy, might be all, all kinds of things. Um, but once you provide them with public subsidy, it begins to remove money and uh, resources and attention, actually, mm. and skill and capacity from uh, people in, in other uh, sectors. So this... Um, this uh, part of education is for public good and for public and for public life. And I know the independent schools try to do that in their own way through things like the International Baccalaureate, the service and community components and so on. So I'm not criticizing any individual or any school. It's really a, a criticism of a, of a system and a society that, that needs to rethink about equity, needs to rethink equity, inclusion and fairness. And I know you've, through Gonski and so on, you've, you've tried this uh, historically in the past and then met a bit of a backlash and you know the current government doesn't really support that uh but but it's an agenda that should not go away and uh that all educators should care about the suggestion is that uh, schools policy and universities actually create disengagement and uh, i think that's quite a bold thing to say i think i agree with it but i'm not really quite sure how that how you might describe that what's how do you see that playing out how do we actually create disengagement well, if, if you ask people for their common sense interpretations of what disengagement means, it, it, it means, you know, looking out the window, being bored, doodling. Um, now with kids learning at home, it's, you know, tr- trying to improve the background on your computer or, <laughs> uh, you know, rather than actually concentrating on the task, which is no different than doodling, actually. So, so a common sense interpretation of engagement is... Well, you know, teachers are just not interesting enough, or, or they they're not getting the kids focused all the time. They need to concentrate more. So we need some instruments to help them to do this. Uh, so let's have observation instruments, so principals can walk around, see how many of those kids are engaged and not engaged, and wag the finger at the teacher if mm. if not enough of the kids are engaged. Or we can do surveys. Uh, some school systems are exhausted by giving kids three or four student engagement surveys a year. They're so busy filling in surveys they've no time to get engaged and or or rubrics that enable you to measure and and really to push people to say look you've only got so many you're only on kind of level three on the rubric of where your kids are in engagement you need to get them to level four guys uh and and so this is the common sense view that if only kind of teachers could get their act together then then more of the kids would get engaged and what our research shows 
masters working with uh, a lot of schools in five states in the US, which is where all this work comes from. Uh, it was schools and teachers that wanted to increase engagement. It's, there's a lot of things in their way. And, and, and the things in their way include um, in, include uh, th things like a standardization and the testing, which creates disenchantment. It takes away the magic of learning. If you're sat in front of a piece of paper from the age of five, shading in bubbles so that you can practice shading in bubbles for when you come across your first test. And we've seen that, by the way. <laughs> oh, no. um, and, um, and, and so... Yeah, and we, we've seen First Nations kids be very engaged in some lessons and, and then go have to go into a test prep class where they're redoing a writing comprehension uh, exercise. And it's it's like a totally different kid that you're watching in, in the room because the schools are actively creating disengagement when they over-focus on a standardization and testing. When they're distracted by technology, rather than thoughtfully engaged with uh, with with technology so sometimes schools cause that that distraction with excess uh, screen time not enough learning in the outdoors not enough learning with manipulatives but thinking screens are the answer to screens are the answer to everything they're part of the answer but they're by no means they're by no means all of all of the answer and then there's disconnection which is uh, that the curriculum feels disconnected from who I am, what my identity is. If uh, if I'm LGBT, for example, uh, can I see myself in the curriculum? Do I see the kinds of families that, 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 that like, like my family? Um, we might think that's obvious, but, but we've come across to Catholic schools and Catholic systems that do not deal with LGBT issues particularly well. Um, and, and many do, but not all do. And they're for reasons of uh, the, the system's moving, the faith is moving. Um, but to be able to achieve, you need to feel that you are recognized. You can see yourself in the school. When you have a word of the day uh, and you want to talk about it as a class, uh, then it's great if you've got Syrian refugees and you ask one of your kids for an Arabic word of the day. And so the kid will introduce that. And then all, and then the other kids say, that's interesting. Can we have another Arabic word tomorrow? <laughs> so, so it, it's really thinking, and so it's, you know, what, why wouldn't teachers uh, connect the curriculum? Well, in high schools in particular, sometimes there's too much curriculum. You, you have to rush through the curriculum. Yeah. Practically every history curriculum I know, the most interesting part of the history is near the end. It's the most recent. <laughs> yeah. It's the last on the curriculum, and it's the one you rush through the most. So the bit you're most interested in is 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 the bit you don't always get get connected with. So there are many things that schools and universities do, uh, not intentionally, not deliberately, but, but they're very systemic, that actively create disengagement. And this is one thing we need to address uh, collectively as teachers, uh, collectively as schools, and collectively as a system. Almost sounds as if we're trying too hard to create engagement, like a not being able to see the wood for the trees kind of uh, argument where you're working so hard on creating engagement that you've lost sight of what you're actually trying to do. If it's, if, if it's, more, than, if it's more than the opposite of that, do you think that we're possibly talking about entertainment? I th I th and I'm, I'm thinking 
people listening to this who might be saying, oh, look, you're just, you're just trying to entertain kids. Is, is that where we're going? Well, if, if you're wearing yourself out by standing upside down and uh, doing somersaults and, and uh, anything to keep the en- kids entertained, then, then there's a fundamental mistake going on, which is, which is you're doing all the work uh, and, and, and the kids aren't. And of, of course, if you've got narcissistic kids with narcissistic parents who think, come on, entertain me, come on, <laughs> then, then, um, th- then you're getting into the wrong game here, but basically. And if you've got principals coming around who uh, confuse uh, engagement with entertainment, you're in, you're in the wrong kind of game. Um, engagement takes many kinds of forms. S- sometimes it's fun, but not always. Sometimes it's hard. Uh, I do a lot of long distance hiking. It's not always fun when the when the rain is lashing, the the wind is high, and you're worried about how to get off the mountain in the dark down four thousand feet with a with just a headlamp. It's not always fun, but I'll tell you, you're very engaged. Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, engagement sometimes involves sacrifice, uh, mastery. So mastery is a big part of engagement. Getting that sense of from a kid from the moment where they feel they can't do something, perhaps they feel they can never do something, to, to the moment where they become a master of it and can actually teach it, teach it to other kids. The, the task of a teacher or a trainer of a marathon runner or a, or a, a, a mentor of a, of a musician involves many moments of difficulty or, or people uh, trying to create a breakthrough in a vaccine creates many moments of difficulty, of frustration, of false trails, suffering even. Uh, so engagement may involve suffering, may involve sacrifice. It shouldn't only involve suffering. I'm not trying to legitimize the kind of high school teachers that I had who, (laughs) you know, lived by the guiding light of suffering. (laughs) But, 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 you know, suffering sometimes is a necessary part of learning and enjoyment is different from entertainment and enjoyment. The view from the top of the mountain requires the work to get to the top of the mountain Mm. And that is enjoyment. Entertainment often requires no work, no investment. Sit down, watch the movie, have a laugh, uh, move on. Schools sometimes think there's just one way to engage kids. It's by having fun or using a technology or making all the work purposeful and not doing Harry Potter or where the wild things are or Frozen or, or whatever it might be. But there's many ways to engage kids. and. Um, and, and, and if, if we know what those are and we can see how the system frustrates them and, and, and we have capability in all those ways, then, then we can engage most of the kids most of the time. If, if, if we think all the answer is with technology or with fun or with relevance or, or with just sheer hard work, grit and grim determination, 
then then you'll get some of the kids some of the time but that's <laughs> but that's all that you'll do and sometimes you'll get none of the kids none of the time <laughs> yeah, that's right i can just see a maths class now here i want you to do these hundred questions it's going to require grit and perseverance and you'll sweat and you'll really exactly. enjoy it and you'll be yeah. totally totally engaged <laughs> one one of the best teachers we saw in our research by the way one of the most engaging teachers was uh um it's it's a short story but but we saw a brilliant teacher in music, very engaging with the kids. Um, we thought, well, you know, it's easy to engage the kids in music. We said, how did you get into this? She said, well, I wanted to become a maths teacher because I had a very inspiring maths teacher, but we're a small rural school, the short of music teachers. So I, t- I teach the music. So I said, who's your maths teacher? She said, oh, he's just down the hall. So we, so we went into his class and we watched him and uh, unannounced, and it's teaching square roots. And, and it's one of the most interesting lessons I've ever seen. Um, so it's easy to be engaging when you're teaching marimba. Hmm. It, it's essential to be engaging. Anything can be taught in an engaging way, even square roots. Um, <laughs> and, and you just have to approach it from that standpoint to begin with. I guess that would require an enormous amount of self-reflection from educators as they think, okay, well, maybe I just need to step back, think about what I'm doing, um, and then perhaps even come to the realization that this is, a, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought, maybe because I've been yeah. trying so hard or for whatever reason. Do you think some teachers might then step back and say, actually, this self-reflection process has taught me that this is too hard. I can't do this. In every profession, there's always some people who don't do the job particularly well, uh, th- right? Th- yeah, just not airline so, pilots, right? <laughs> you know, so 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 we do have right. We do have crashed airlines, ugly buildings, dead patients. Oh no! Uh, we and, and sometimes we have stupid students, uh, and uh, so on. The reasons are sometimes down to the professionals. So every profession has it. Uh, but but it's not worth spending a lot of time there unless, like, like most people, have it a lot, and they have it deliberately. Um, what what is helpful, I think, is uh, when I'm working with teachers. What I will sometimes ask them to do is to first of all, I think about a student who's engaged a lot on ask themselves, so why they what is disengaged? Ask themselves why they're disengaged. And then we kind of collect the thoughts in on that. Uh, and then, then ask teachers to think about when they've been disengaged uh, as adults. Might be bad professional development or an awful meeting or a teaching online. Mm. Um, so just say, so why are they disengaged? And, um, and then I get them to compare their answers. And, and they're fascinating, which is uh, with, with kids, the reason for disengagement are often attributed to the to the child or to the family or the background so oh they have post-traumatic stress or they've got fetal alcohol or uh you know they come from a family in deep poverty they don't get any sleep Uh, all of which is true of course you know so so they're not making this up this is true and it's it's real uh when they come to themselves they don't say oh well it's because i'm drinking too much or i'm in the middle of a divorce or um, I, I can't stand my teenage kids. I wish they'd get out of the house more. Uh, but, but, but rather, rather they they say things like, "Principal doesn't listen to us." You know, policymakers aren't interested. We have to do the wrong things a lot. Uh, we have too much work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, 
with when we think about disengagement with kids, we often think about their environment. When we think about disengagement with ourselves, we often think about our working conditions and so on. So I just ask educators to connect those dots a bit, really. And I think with both of them, with both child and with um, teachers, there's, there's a double commitment that's needed. And that is the collective responsibility of the institution to do something better for the adults and for the kids to make it more engaging. And the personal responsibility of the adult to get more, you know, if you don't like the meeting, you're sat in the back corner, chip in, improve the meeting. Yeah. Don't 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 sit back and blame it on everybody else. And I'm with the child. Uh, one of the great innovations in special education is self-advocacy. So if you have a disability, uh, let's teach you what your disability is. Let's teach you about some famous people who've got your disability, very accomplished. So you become proud of your disability, not not ashamed of it. And let's teach you how to advocate with your teacher what needs to change in your classroom so that you can learn more effectively. So with both, we need to combine the personal responsibilities to get engaged, not just demand it, but but prepare people for it and the collective responsibility to help everybody get engaged. Let's assume that uh, there are some teachers out there listening to this who, who think, yep, okay, this is resonating with me. I'm, I'm ready. I need to do something. What's the question that educators need to ask themselves before they change anything? Uh, well, in, in part, it's what I've just described. Uh, it, it's not all of the answer, but, but we are learners too as adults. So try and reflect a bit on... Um, on what creates engagement and disengagement for us and, and, and how that, that affects a child. Um, be, be aware of, of when and how you're likely to be less engaging for your kids. So I'll give a couple of examples. Um, one thing I do from time to time is I shadow teachers through the day. Not kids. I shadow teachers through mm-hmm. the day. I shadow kids as well. Uh, good high school teachers, I mean really good high school teachers, are not the same teacher at the end of the day as they are at the beginning. How so? They're not. They're worn out. <laughs> uh, but because because an, a, a primary school teacher where the job's hard enough, at least has mainly the same group of kids. You're not constantly making these transitions between, you know, this frame, this relationship, this Mm. setting. But in high school, you've got these short transitions. So you're having to wind yourself up to be engaging like several times a day. And frankly, I feel this now on Zoom. I have to be more engaging on Zoom than I am in a in a regular setting. My face has to do this. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm doing is I'm raising my eyebrows. I'm showing more expression. And, and after two or three Zooms a day, I'm totally exhausted because I'm giving and I'm getting nothing back, just speaking to a dark vortex, yeah. uh, basically. <laughs> yeah. so, so first of all, be a, become aware as a teacher, you know, wh- wh- when you're more and less engaging, don't blame yourself, just become aware and think about what, what are the conditions that are creating that and, and how in some way can you address can you address those conditions so it might be you know last lesson in the day don't 
don't try and teach people square roots, but, but you know, try and do something else, which is engaging for you and engaging for the kids at, at the end of the day. Um, second is uh, sometimes teachers teach stuff that they don't feel very confident in, competent in or interested in. And you're probably thinking, this sounds crazy. But, but teachers in small rural schools sometimes have to teach everything, including stuff they're not qualified for. Yeah. So, you know, try teaching Greek myths when you don't know a lot about Greek myths. <laughs> and, and we've watched people do that, and it's not very exciting, no. I tell you. It, 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 because, because you're only half a myth ahead of the kids, yeah, basically. that's right. Um, and, and then, and then uh, maths in primary school. I, uh, you know, I'll go with a lot of primary school teachers and uh, I'll be in a big group and I'll ask the question, hands up if you think you're not a math person. And a lot of hands in the room go up. So we've got primary teachers teaching maths for half the day who think they're not maths people. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know, like the, because they're excited about literacy, about words. Uh, they love literacy in their life. They love reading. And then I say, so if you've got to get your kids engaged in, in maths, you've got to get engaged in maths in your life. Mm. And you've got to have people help you to do that. Yeah. You've, you've, got, you've got to be excited about equations. You've got to walk up the street with your own child and say, right, that's number 17. That's number 19. What's the next number going to be? You've got to be as excited talking and thinking about math in your life as you are talking and thinking about about words and you need people to help you do that so when we've been helping the province here think about mass achievement we've been helping them to think about how they develop teachers own confidence and relationship to maths as 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 well as just how you teach uh, number sense more effectively for example well, it sounds like the uh, challenges are many, but we're working hard to, to address them. And uh, I'm sure people genuinely appreciate your work. Andy, so great to speak with you. Thank you so much. Pleasure. We have a long way to go, but we've also made a lot of progress. You've been listening to Central Station. To find out more about Andy's work, both in Canada and internationally, check out the links in the description to this episode. And if you know someone who might have missed the summit but wanted to be there, then please share this episode with them. This podcast is brought to you by Central. To find out more, visit the website, central.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Thanks for listening. <laughs>